If you look that way, which is where the Rosa Parks Museum is, just one block over, if you look that way, that's the way the Selma marchers came into town, from up that hill this way. And they walked to the circle, turned right, and went up Dexter Avenue to the Capitol. All right, so that's where they'll recreate the march. They'll do something next week, not this week, but next week, and then two and a half weeks from now, when they recreate it, they'll do it twice. Two Turn me around, we're gonna love equal justice. Turn me around, keep on walking, keep on talking, marching to the freedom land. <laughs> Ain't gonna let no interview. Turn me around, turn me around, turn me around, we're gonna We're walking up to the Montgomery, Alabama State Capitol in Montgomery. We're going to do an exercise we're calling Shallow Deep. We ask a shallow question, we ask a deep question. I'm Steve Scher. I'm Patrick Okocha. My shallow question for you is who is your favorite, or who do you consider the greatest journalist of all time? Well, I'll give you my broadcast answer. I mean, you know, in broadcasting. And uh, I think that has to remain Edward R. Murrow. Did you know Murrow? Good night and good luck. Yeah, of course. Because he, uh, because he set the standard in terms of great radio reporting, which has always been problematic ever since. And he set the standard in terms of being a truth teller. Um, that was a pretty, actually, deep, shallow question. So I'll give you, I'll give you a similar deep, shallow question. Um, who among the people you've been reading about for this trip and these ideas has been the most profound for you. You know, as, as, as cliche as it, this might come off because we, we're gonna actually spend time with this individual and we've learned so much about him, I'd have to say Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette. Um, I've had the opportunity to spend you know, intimate time with him and his wife, Kate, and his story is one that is so poignant, so amazing, and so over, under, undervalued. Um, he's, He's made significant contributions to the civil rights movement. And unfortunately for me, growing up in Seattle, I never had the chance to really learn about him or learn about other, other foot soldiers and unsung heroes of the, of the movement. So I definitely say Bernard Lafayette. All right, now you ask me the deep one and I got one for you. Okay, so my deep question is, kind of, is gonna stay on the lane of the, the journalism experience. Um, so as a journalist, and I have a little bit of experience in, in the journalism industry, I work at the Seattle Times, and being in the journalism industry, are you able, you know, especially on trips like this, to fully, to fully feel on this trip? You know, I know objectivity is a big part of journalism. How are you able to comprehend what's going on, soak it in, have emotions, but still be able to you know, take it on as a journalist? So take to managing your journalistic lens versus your personal. How do you do that? So for this trip, I have pretty much put the journalistic lens aside. This trip seemed too important for me to even pretend to act as an observer. So 
I'm not. But I also feel that I think journalism has made too much of that, as they say, vaunted objectivity. Mm -hmm. And what has become more important and clear to me in my, in, as I got older, especially in terms of uh, models that I saw from, from uh, guys like... Pat! Pat! Maria! From guys like, uh, we were just following them too. We were just gonna, we were just gonna walk somewhere, who knows where. <laughs> um, uh, following models like uh, Stewart, John Stewart, Stephen yes. Colbert, John Oliver. I think they recharged my batteries and a lot of people in reminding us that it's about fundamental truths. It's about peeling away the, 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 the crap and the, and the spin and the lies. And, trying to find what's logical on the basis of what is fair and just. That's, what did you do, what do you do at the Seattle Times? I work in the uh, sports department as a news assistant, so I compile the uh, high school stats as well as uh, do social media and go out and occasionally cover a game or two and write, and just do a quick write-up for the, for the website. That's excellent. Do you want to be a journalist? I did. And I can't say... Uh, I can't say I'm on that track anymore, and you kind of talked about, you know, that objectivity. I've, I've become so passionate about, about you know, issues of race, and and one that that really speaking as an African American male, I can't speak from an objective perspective. I'm very biased when it comes to race. Um, I take it onto the forefront. And I just feel like maybe in the journalism industry, with my passion and, and where I see, you know, my work heading towards, I don't think it might be conducive for, for you know, at least contemporary journalism. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question about race. What's okay. your last name? Okocha. And where's that from? Nigeria. And where were you born? Seattle. Where were your parents born? Nigeria. So I had some, uh, some classes where, uh, actually it was some exercises I did when I was teaching young people mm -hmm. and, and stories that they wanted to tell. High school students wanted to tell stories about the... Um, the disconnect, the uh, weird uh, sort of personal disconnect that some of the students from Ethiopia, Somalia, uh, and, and Nigeria had with their African-American compatriots. Yes. Like there was this, well, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know if I should characterize it. Had you ever, because of your last name, have you ever run into something like that? My whole life. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm just starting to... To, to embrace my holistic perspective on life. So what, what was um, the, first, what did you run into? What was, how do you So at first, I, since I, you know, I'm growing up in the United States, obviously I speak like the locals. I, I, I speak as an American. And my, my interests are, are, are as African-American as can be. I love hip hop music. I love sports. I love basketball. It's my favorite sport. Well, most people think because I'm African, I, I like soccer. It's quite the opposite. My parents like soccer. I don't. I didn't grow up playing soccer, so I really was able to to really, you know, bring in the American culture. But it's hard when you have immigrant parents because they're trying to instill their culture on you. So you know, I I can't take credit for this, but Bernard Lafayette again, he told me about this thing called the third generational syndrome. And what that is, is the first generation, which is the parents, right? They, they immigrate to a new territory and they try to bring that culture there with them. Second generation, that's their kids. That's if they have children who are born in the new territory that they inhabit. They're the ones who, you know, kind of assimilate to the dominant culture. That's me. I assimilate to the American culture. But what scares me is that third generation. The third generation, that's my children, right? They're the ones who are going to grow up here 
and wonder what you know where the roots are from so if i don't start to embrace my african heritage then my children who are going to have that last name okocha are going to wonder what is okocha where is what does that come from i'm gonna tell them nigeria they said have you been unfortunately i have not yet so i want to be able to 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 keep my keep my culture alive even though it's not as direct as my parents and and it can get it can get really lost as a as a first generation american in general anytime you're the first generation in your family how do you balance between you know being being an american and being an african even though i've never been to africa and it gets challenging when i'm around africans and they ask me have you been to africa i said i'm not some people may say well are you, how are you my parents are african I don't, I don't physically look African, so people I, at times, my name, my first name is Patrick. So they're like, it, they don't know I'm African until they hear my last name. So how do I, how do I navigate, you know, people knowing right off the bat I'm African? You know, it, that, that's kind of hard because my parents have very thick accents. So we, I mean, and neither of their first languages are English. So it's, it's kind of difficult, but, you know. The, the, disparity, the disparity, and right now I'm doing an honors thesis that focuses around the relationship between African Americans and African immigrants because there is this disconnect, right? But the thing, our, our, our experiences are so similar, whether it's through colonization or whether it's through slavery. Forms of oppression should actually bring us together instead of divide us. But media, and that's why I got into the media because I want to rupture the narrative. I want to be able to say, you know, what is projected in the media is not what is always representative in real life. So, you know, I know as I know as a young child, I didn't want to go to Africa because I would see images of Africa, famine, impoverished, diseases. My parents would say that's not that's not all Africa has to offer. If anything, that's a minute part. And conversely, my parents who live in Africa who don't have daily interaction with African Americans say, well, you know, African Americans they all play basketball or they all loot and steal because that's the media images that, that are depicted. So how do we infiltrate you know, that, these systems and have more you know, broad and, and more dynamic depictions of race in the media? That's the challenge. You know, I have that same prejudice about the white South. I've had that since I was a kid and I still have it. I still hope to see it challenged to that down here. I mean, it, it truly speaks to the power and influence of the media. I, I, I always say it, I'm like, media shapes our daily interactions. That's how I see it. That's kind of a, that's how we are primed. That's how we are framed. Like it's it's just very important. And and, and those who are in power of the media, I think I think it's I just feel like it's the, one of the most important most important components. And the only way we can rupture, rupture those narratives are through personal interaction. And that's why this trip is so important. And we didn't just you know we didn't just take a class on it and learn about it. We actually came down here. We experienced it. That's praxis learning. That's actually on-site learning. It's very important. So my grandparents came here, and my parents were born and raised in Chicago, and so I'm that third generation. Mm -hmm. And I have no connection to my roots other than my suburban mm -hmm. Chicago roots. And my children have even less connection to their faith, Jewish, or where their grandparents came from, because it was 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. Uh, and it's something that we, my kids and I talk about all the time, because we have some very shallow traditions that we follow, mm -hmm. just to have some memory, some but, but it's so distant. It's, and yeah, roots are important. I've been thinking a lot about going back to Lithuania and finding the shtetl where my, all two of my parent, grandparents came from and going to Riga where the other two came from 
and just standing there and going, oh, okay, at least I see this. Because I agree, it's important. It's a personal pilgrimage at some point, right? That, and I feel like that's why this trip is so important because, you know, it, it really takes, you know, using this trip as an archetype of, of how you want to shape your life. It, you know, it, this trip inspired me to say, you know what, I need a personal pilgrimage. I need to at some point, you know, here soon, go to Africa and make my own personal pilgrimage as well. So, One thing about journalism is you get opportunity to travel through fellowships and journalism fellowships. So I got to go to Africa three years ago. We went to Liberia, and we went in part because it was Liberia, a nation that was created out of uh, slaves that returned to their, to their land, not their own countries, right, but to that land. And how that, the, how those people and the racial attitudes they brought back shaped their interactions with the people that lived there and, and how you had high society and, and low society and, and then how the modern Liberia was shaped by all that. We went at the end of a terrible civil war and people were still recovering. We saw destroyed cities and towns and we saw people trying to find a place to live and how people were displaced and then moving into new lands and displacing other people. But it was, it was also an amazing thing and to see all that. I mean, we saw the you know, rubber plantations, so we, we went and saw a lot of the, what capitalism has done to the country. But we also met amazing people and fun people. You know that feeling we had in the church last night? We came into a church, though, the church was for a, a, a shelter, an open shelter, on a red dirt floor, and and uh, probably 200 women who had decided it was time to end the fighting. They were they were market women. They called them. they were market women. They worked in the markets. They sold various things, fruits, vegetables, t-shirts. So they were you know at the base of commerce, and they just they just it had to stop the murders and the rapings and the killings by and of their own son. And they just started protesting in the town square. First two, then four. And then more and more of these women stood up and they had leaders. And that was, they were an inspiration. They were powerful. So, yeah, different images of Africa, too. I mean, the, the power of women, right? I think, I mean, that's also, that's also, you know, I think that's downplayed as well, especially learning about the civil rights movement. The, the influence and the power of women to, to, to spark change. I think that's very poignant what you just pointed out as well. That's right. The woman we learned about from Selma who basically spearheaded the movement quietly and then it ends up being with Barack Obama. Uh, that was amazing. Miss Amelia Boynton. Yeah. By the way, did it change your life at all when you had a president who had an African last name? Definitely, definitely, and I do feel like that is downplayed as well. The, that's Obama's me, like he's first generation, you know, and to immigrant father from Kenya. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that I'm the next Barack Obama, but I mean, it's it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely, you know, a great feeling to to see that, you know, you know, you have a first generation. I feel like Hook he could embrace his his Kenyan heritage more, but I mean. At the end of the day, his name is Barack Obama. That is, that's not a common, you know, it's not a common name. So, so you know the Africans in him at some somewhere. So.
One of my favorite things that uh, David Alexander recounted that President Obama said was they were going to push ahead for the health care bill. And a couple of his advisors said, look, you know, I mean, this is all going to be really tough. Do you feel lucky? And Obama said, I am, I am an African-American president with the name Barack Obama. Yeah. You're damn right I feel lucky. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Touche. Very true.